Welcome to New York Institute of Technology's podcast, The Scope. Produced by the College of Osteopathic Medicine, our episodes focus on the medical school experience and how it helps shape future physicians. Learn about exciting new health and wellness initiatives, cutting-edge medical research and technology, and how to effectively navigate medical school. We are excited to have you join us. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of The Scope. I'm your host, Melody Young, and today I am joined by two administrators from both our New York and Arkansas campus who will talk to me about the electronic residency and match process. They'll share advice on how to navigate this stressful period as we prepare for a career in medicine and how we can help ourselves in becoming the most competitive candidate we can be. Let me start by introducing our two lovely guests. From the NYIT Com New York campus, Deb Heineman, who oversees the ERAS and match process for the medical school. And from our Arkansas campus, senior career advisor, Dr. Holly Prophet. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So when I started medical school a little over three years ago, I remember meeting with some upperclassmen and a single conversation really stuck out to me. She mentioned to me that she was a BSCO student, and for our listeners who don't know what that means, it essentially means these students commit to medicine right out of high school. They do three years of undergrad, and they start medical school right after. And she told me that she didn't realize residency programs also looked at extracurriculars from when she was an undergrad, and she wished she'd known that prior to the application season. If some of us aren't sure if we even want to pursue medicine until well after college, how far back are these residency directions actually looking when they're considering candidates? And how early should medical students begin thinking about the residency process? I think that students should start thinking about residency once they enter medical school. They may or may not know what specialty they're interested in, but the first two years of medical school are really the only opportunities they're going to have to be involved in student organizations, to do volunteer work, to do research work. We share a lot of information beginning with orientation with our first year students. I send out, as Holly does, emails about joining student organizations, about possible clinical and research opportunities after your first year, before you start second year, because that's really the only summer you're going to have off, and about joining professional organizations, because a number of professional organizations have mentors that can also help guide you through the application process. The application itself looks at all activities from college through medical school, even those that are not medically related. So students that are involved in performing arts or athletes, or they're very involved with their religious affiliations, those are all important aspects of their application as well. I would also add that students shouldn't be too concerned about college activities and how those relate to medicine, because osteopathic medicine is actually the most common career change for those going into healthcare fields. So we've had students who have come in who have been retail managers that have worked in tech, who have worked in research, people who were nurses. So those things that you did in college or the things you did before medical school can be just as valuable. We always tell the students, it's not about what you did, it's how you talk about it. So those things could be valuable to program directors as well, if you talk about the leadership skills that you developed or the unique experiences that you had that will make you a more compassionate physician, a better listener, what have you. So everything is a value if you can look at it creatively and realize why it was important to you. Thank you both. I think that was really, really good advice. I know that certain specialties look for certain things more so than others. So if 
a medical student's coming in and they're still unsure of what specialty they're interested in, what kind of activities should they be trying to get involved in? I think it really just depends on what you're into. So one of the things that students get really excited about is research because that's kind of the new fab thing. And some specialties do require it. And it's purely just that you've had those skills to have research. However, I tell students don't do research if you don't love research, if you're not interested, if it's not something that you want to do, because when you're asked about it, you won't be passionate describing it. We have students that their passion is education. So they spend a lot of time doing outreach with our elementary schools or with our Delta Caravan or at the Academic Health Center like you have in New York. And that's what's most valuable is what's important to you. Yes, there are requirements that we would recommend if you were set on a certain specialty that we've seen trends that if you don't have this box checked, it could hurt you. But when you talk about interviewing and talking to someone about the things that you're into, it definitely shows when you're very passionate about something and you just did it because you felt like you had to. And I can't speak for program directors because I'm not one, but I can tell you in a genuine experience that you're going to speak more passionately about things that you actually care about rather than things you did that you thought you had to do. Holly, thank you so much. I remember when I went down to Arkansas and I spoke to you, I, one of the things that really stuck with me is you telling me that the checklist that everybody, all medical students think they have to fill out is kind of a a concept that is ingrained into us, but is not really what is necessary when it comes to actually applying for these residency positions. So I hope all our listeners take away that it's really about what you're interested in, what you're passionate about, and not to do something just for the sake of doing it. Now, this term ERAS, this is something that's been floating around my group chats with my fourth year friends who are applying for residency this year. My first question is one, what is ERAS so that everybody knows? And what is this whole process like from application to match? Okay, ERAS is an acronym for Electronic Residency Application Service. But basically what that is, is the process through which all the documents you're going to need for your residency application get transmitted to programs. So after you think about what you've done your first two years, at the end of your second year is really when you get access to the online system so that you can have letters of recommendation uploaded from your third year clerkships and your fourth year clerkships. One of the things we always recommend, which is new um, in the last couple of years, is every time you have a good third year rotation to have a letter uploaded so that you have it. You don't do anything with your letters unless you assign them. So that's what will happen in the third year is you'll be going through your third year clerkships and getting letters uploaded. Um, in the spring of your third year, clinical education will introduce you to how you are going to apply for your fourth year audition rotations. On both of our campuses, we have a dedicated study for slot one of your fourth year, but rotations two through six is when you're going to start applying for rotations at the hospitals where you really like to match. Then um, in June, ERAS opens up, which is when you really start your application process. That's when you're going to start filling out this application you're going to include all your activities that you've been involved in. You're going to write a personal statement. You're going to have your photo taken and have that uploaded. You've been gathering your letters of recommendation. You have your Comlex and or USMLE scores. That's all part of the application when you submit it in September. On both campuses, we review the applications and personal statements. So we have a time frame to do that. 
And then um, after you submit your application is when we uh, start working with you on your interviewing skills and do mock interviews. And we have an online platform that you can use as well. Thank you for that super thorough explanation, Deb. And I'd say like of the people who've gone through this like ERAS match process, I don't think most of the people I've spoken to have reported that this was like an easy or particularly enjoyable process. Can you share some of the kind of obstacles that applicants might face when they're completing their ERAS? And do you have any tips for upcoming applicants like me as we prepare for fourth year in this entire stressful process? I think the hardest thing is that you're doing so much at the same time. It's not that you're just doing your residency application, okay? You're studying for your boards. You're doing your audition rotations. You're trying to complete an application. You're trying to write a personal statement. You're trying to get everything done the day before programs can start downloading programs because you all want to be in that first download. And that basically comes down to June, July, and August. So that's three months where you're doing all of this. So it's not like you could have dedicated time that, okay, now I'm just going to do my application. One of the things I try and tell our students, and I know Holly does too, is that when you're studying and you want to take a five-minute break, fill out one page of the application. As long as you save it, you're fine. Don't save the application for one huge process because it is a long process. You're trying to remember, hopefully your CV is up to date, but you're trying to remember everything you've done. And that's where it gets difficult because you're sitting there writing and focusing on that. But you know what? I got to study for USMLE because I got to take that or I got to do comics. That's where the time really becomes difficult and the process becomes stressful because all of a sudden these deadlines are coming up and you got to have it all done. I would also add that there's a lot of added anxiety that's in your head that's not actually part of the application because this is when everything becomes real. So you've worked your, some of y'all your entire lives since you were five years old because you wanted to be a doctor and now pressing submit on this electronic application feels like this very intimate thing of your entire soul on paper. And I get that. However, slightly irrational fears. We've been doing this for a long time now. We've had three successful matches in Arkansas. Deb's been doing this for nearly a decade. It all works out. This process does have a lot of stress, but it's stress that's mitigated, just like Deb explained, of taking one bite at a time of the application rather than waiting till, oh, you now you've moved your level two, or now you have this rotation that you didn't expect that you're really enjoying and you don't want to submit that time. So I cannot procrastinate. I have very high functioning anxiety. And so my best piece of advice, if you want to manage that stress, is when that application opens that first Wednesday in June, put in your name and biographical information. Cool. Check done. Then we move on to the next section. Like she said, just do 10 minutes at a time. And if I could get students to do that, I promise you, I would do a case study based on level of stress of students that submit early versus students that submit late, because that's when the stress comes is feeling like you can't get everything done. In addition, we've seen for the last couple of years with COVID, they keep adding things onto the application, right? So now we have the supplemental application, which was only three specialties the first time. Now it's 16. Now we have these other letters of recommendation or evaluations that are due. So the best advice is just start early. So use your resources and manage that stress because it's going to be a stressful process and a long process regardless, but there are absolutely ways for you to get involved in managing that process. So it's not so stressful. And then in March, you get the best day of your life and find out where you're going and it's all worth it. And it is absolutely all worth it. It's so funny that you guys describe it like this, because it feels like 
college, right? In high school, you're preparing and you feel like it's the most important moment in your life when you submit your college applications. And then college passes. And now you're applying for medical school. And it feels like this all over again. Like you have to prepare all of your documents again. You need to get your letters of rec. And then it again feels like the largest mountain. And I feel like the stakes just get higher because <laughs> now this is like determining where you're going to end up in life. You're exactly right, Melody. It's, it is that buildup and it is everything you've accomplished. But then the next thing is, okay, now I'm studying for my specialty board. So y'all have chosen a really challenging profession. I think that's the understatement of the century. However, some of the greatest reward that you will ever have and the privilege of getting to have to take care of people's lives and their babies and their old parents and things like that. I mean, very few people are entrusted with that privilege. And that's just part of the privilege and how what comes with it is all of the stress and these momentous things. But I promise you on the other side, it's absolutely all worth it. Yeah, I think it's funny. A lot of my friends are like, I hope this is worth it. <laughs> all the stress they're going through right now. So I have another question. I've definitely heard of these and seen these massive spreadsheets of student reported ratings of like certain residency programs, what the work-life balances, the location, the salary, the culture of that hospital, et cetera. And a lot of medical students that are applying for residency seemingly like peruse these as they're creating their ranked lists. Would you say that these are reliable resources that I should be using when I'm making decisions about specialties and residency programs? Or are there other sources that you would recommend to me and other people that will be doing this in the future? One of the things we did, because when we were at ACOM in April, a lot of the program directors were complaining specifically about the online resources, especially two that we all know about, because what was happening was students were putting misinformation and they were losing applicants that could have applied to their programs and didn't apply. So in addition to careers in medicine and residency explorer, which we recommend highly because it's live data from the prior year's match. One of the things that we um, implemented this year is we created our own Slack channels. So we started with Slack and have residency career services as our overall channel. And then we created individual channels for every specialty. And I can tell you that both campuses, the students are on it together, that the sharing among the students has been phenomenal. I mean, when we first started, an anesthesia student put up every meet and greet that every program had for all the other anesthesia students within that section. We had a student that was giving up a rotation and put it up there and said, if anyone wants a rotation at this hospital slot, whatever, it's now open because I'm dropping it. For radiology, they were sharing where to get research, what conferences were coming up. We were just making sure the information was correct, but it was all the sharing between all the students. I think it's had a positive impact, especially on the more competitive specialties, because they've been able to really share information that sometimes was out there, but may not have been correct. Deb, there's so much to unpack there, because one, I love Slack, so I love that the school is using Slack, I think is the most powerful tool ever. Our lab uses Slack like no other. So <laughs> I love that. And second, I also want to just comment on how just positive an environment the students are to each other. They're just so helping. It's like really nice to hear that students are willing to help each other and not pitting against each other, especially if you're going for the same specialty. Because I think you hear this a lot in medicine that it's cut through entire article. And it's really nice to hear that our school has created such a 
safe and welcoming environment where everybody everybody feels comfortable just sharing this information regardless. Holly, do you have anything else to add to this? Yeah, I think one of the neat things about our institution that we've really explored and that Deb and I have cultivated over the last few years is this sharing of information. So we do a lot of things together, like the Slack pages. We do these mini match meetings for our students where we talk about the guidelines for each specialty because things have changed with COVID. And we started doing that because there's great resources in that peer-to-peer, right? So I had a student email me who said she wanted to go out west. And remember, I'm from Arkansas, right? So I'm thinking west is like Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. She meant Chicago. So maybe that is west to y'all out in, um, in New York, but that's not the west to us. But the point being that our campus on in Arkansas has our second largest feeder school is Loyola University Chicago. So we do have a lot of folks are in Chicago. So Deb can send students to me and I can connect them with our alumni graduated from Arkansas and vice versa. I've got students who, um, I had a student in my 2020 class who his wife was a surgeon. They were both from Long Island in Connecticut and he wanted to go back that way. And his dad was a NICOM alum. So we were able to connect that way. So there is a lot of good that happens in that peer-to-peer in that sharing. And I, I think that's one of the greatest features of our campus is that we do have each other to reach out to um, and to bounce ideas off of if students see as alum at a program that was Deb's, she helps get their contact information, et cetera. So it's a great resource for our students to be able to help each other and be positive in that process because it is a little misery loves company because it is not a super fun process, but you're able to help and help the next generation who goes through. Thank you. Now I want to ask a little bit about sub eyes or sub internships. I've had some friends tell me that they've gotten into programs without doing one at all, and they still successfully matched into that program and they're doing very good in it. Whereas other people have told me like, it's so important to complete a sub-I because you're not only auditioning for a spot there, but you're also evaluating that hospital and that program and the people and the culture that they've cultivated. So from your point of view as advisors, would you recommend doing a sub-I? What is the benefit? the harm in doing one? It really just depends. It depends on the specialty. So some specialties will not interview you, or it used to be pre-COVID where they had less applicants, would not interview you if you didn't do a sub-I. Some specialties require them, but don't require them. And the fact that you have to have a certain letter of evaluation from a program. So that really just depends on specialties. So what I always tell students when they kind of get ramped up and say, oh, so-and-so said I had to do this. Like, well, let's take a deeper look into what you're thinking about and what you want to apply to and what that actually looks like. If there was one really dangerous thing in medical school, it's not like spending too much time in the library or anything like that. It's comparison because students will compare specialty to specialty to specialty. And that's not true. It's also program dependent. Deb could tell you in the Northeast that there are certain programs that if you do not rotate there, they will not give you an interview. We have some down here in the South as well. So it's really dependent and it requires you to get to know your specialty and the guidelines and really what you need. The other thing is most of the time sub-ives will help you. The other thing I want to say about a sub-I is when you do a sub-I, it's the closest experience to being an intern. If you're at a hospital and you're doing a sub-I, you're really performing as an intern. So you, you don't just do the minimal activities, you're actually participating at a different level. And as Holly talked about, because there are some programs that require a specific type of letters, such as a chair of medicine or a chair of OBGYN, 
those are the letters you get from either a sub-I or a subspecialty because you're working with the actual head of the department. So that's why they're important. I know when I first started doing this, we had a requirement for fourth year where students had to do two sub-I's. That doesn't exist anymore. So whenever students ask me how many sub-I's I should do, I always say, well, try and do two if you want to do sub-I's because you'll get a good experience out of your five additional rotations. You do two, and then you pick whatever other electives you want for your other specialties. But you want to make sure whatever rotation you have, whether it's a sub-I, whether it's in the subspecialty, such as maybe cardio or EMPs, you want to make sure that you get there early. So if you have to be there at eight o'clock, a quarter to eight is considered late by a lot of doctors. You want to stay late. If you're leaving early and there are residents around, you want to say to them, listen, I, I got off early, but is there anything I can do to help you? You want to be friendly with everybody. You want to leave the best impression you can. Along. It's like when you get told when you're going on an interview, the person who greets you at the door, you're just as nice to them as the person who's interviewing. It's the same thing when you're doing your rotations. You want to leave a positive impact. You want them to know that you are going to be a great physician in their residency program so that they select you. So those are some of the things that you want to make sure that you do. But the sub-I really will give you the most experience closest to being an intern. And that way you really can see how the hospital functions, what's expected, et cetera. Thank you, Deb. Now, I am very interested in doing a overseas rotation once I hit fourth year and I finish uh, the auditions. Is this something that students have recommended uh, and does it affect where you end up at all? I know from our experience prior to COVID, whenever students did overseas rotations, they did it after the holidays. And then I just made sure that wherever they were, it was not during match week that they tried not to do an overseas rotation because I did have a student who was in either Pakistan or India during match week. So she was awake when we were asleep and unfortunately she needed to sew for half of her position. And so it was very difficult because she didn't have the best internet and things are being done at different hours. So a lot of students will do it in February, some will do it in April, but most of them have done them after, same with research uh, rotations. They will do them after the holidays or after the audition rotations. Got it. So I think it's time for us to address kind of the elephant in the room, but we and I go to an osteopathic medical school and I definitely still am hearing that there are residency programs that are still not as welcoming to osteopathic students. And I'm somebody who's taking a few years off before my clinicals and I'm delaying my residency application for three years as well. And I really struggled in deciding whether I wanted to take USMLE step one, two summers ago, because it was about to become pass fail the year after and now that both Comlex and USMLE have adopted this pass-fail system, should DO students even take step one since it's not a prereq for step two? And what can we do as DO students to continue making ourselves competitive if there's no longer a score for us to level that playing field with allopathic medical students? 
every decision I make with students is data-driven. It is not my personal preference. It is based on going to conferences, reading reports from the NRMP, which is the National Residency Match Program, where there's nothing to say that, hey, that box needs to be checked. Did I have a handful of students that still took it this year when it was passed film? Absolutely. I can't say that it's making a negative or positive impact yet. It's too soon to tell. What I can say and what Deb will still recommend is then we talk about step two. There's a falsehood out there that you have to take step one to take step two. That is not the case. There have been students who have only taken step two for years, and that's completely fine. I will give a point of caution, though, that unless you are trending towards being successful on your level two, I do not recommend step two or any step if you're not going to be successful because that's actually more harmful. And I have seen that happen. The only other qualifying statement I wanted to make regarding whether to take USMLA 1 or USMLA 2 or which ones is that at both the conferences we've been at recently, program directors, when they get asked that question, how are you going to evaluate students now? It's pass fail. They haven't even decided yet. So they may decide down the road in a year that they're going to start wanting step for osteopathic students because it's the only thing they can think about. I personally think it's important for them to have complex grades. I think the more competitive specialties will probably want step. For example, anesthesia has wanted all four scores, no matter what program it is for four years. The academic competitive ACGME internal medicine programs, for example, in New York City have wanted step since 2016. So I think you work with your academic deans on your campus to review what your academic performance is like. And if you know you can do well, but right now there is no real guidelines for us as advisors or for program directors, because this is the last class with scores. So it's going to be the 2024 class is going to be the real class that is going to be the pilot to see what programs are going to look for. Because when we were at ACOM presenting, three program directors got asked the question and they said they still don't know because they have no idea what they're going to look at. I think for some specialties, things will stay the same. I think for family medicine, it's still going to be a personal statement led as a recommendation. But I think it's the more competitive specialties. They're going to have to figure out what they want to look at. So if STEP is no longer, well, I don't want to say it like that. It's still important, but it's less important than it used to be. What should GEO students be doing? Should it be research? Like what type of extracurriculars can we do to make ourselves stand out? when we're being compared to a comparable allopathic medical student? I think it depends on the specialty, in all honesty. I think research is still going to be important for all what we call the allergies, dermatology, allergy, ophthalmology, orthopedic surgery, general surgery. I think research is still going to be important. But for a program like family medicine, they very much look at your community service experience, what volunteer work you've done. I think that's why it's important now more so than ever. And I have been meeting with a number of 26s and 25s already. What can I do to enhance my application? Because I'm not going to have a score that they're going to be able to judge me by. So I think each specialty is a little different. But if you get involved in your medical school student life office and get involved in research, depending on your specialty, I think those are the things that will enhance your CV. You just don't want to come in as a student and all they see is your academic performance and no co-curricular activities because everything is related to your medicine. So participate in the community free clinic, participate in some of the activities that the student organizations do. A lot of students work with Dr. Heller in sports medicine at the various sites. Um, There's a lot of 
activities that students can do that will enhance their CV. I think it's definitely a pitfall that a lot of medical students fall into when they first start school because they're so overwhelmed with the amount of material they have to do. They're so stressed about just passing exams that they kind of push these co-curriculars until the end of second year. And they're like, oh, now I have to study for boards, but also I need to get involved in every single club on campus. So it's really good that you're telling people to get involved. And it's important, I think, to do it early, earlier than later. Holly, did you want to add anything else? Early and gradually, I just want to say. Early and gradually. I agree. And it's like, just like what we said earlier about research and things like that. It's specialty specific and it's the things you want to do. If I am donating my time or volunteering or learning, why is that important to me? And unfortunately, a lot of the things that are most in the student's control are those touchy feely things that don't have these objective black and white things that you can look at that are the things that are really going to set you apart. Thank you, Holly. I know we've been mostly talking about residency. We've kind of stayed away from like match and actual match day. Is there any advice you could give to students, like one last piece of advice as they prepare for this entire process and what match day will be like? Yeah, I would say just know yourself, know what you want and trust the process. You have to believe that what you've done is good enough. And I know that that's challenging. I know this is scary. I've watched it for the last few years, even before I was doing it for the Arkansas students. You just have to know that all your hard work is going to pay off because 99.9% of the time it does. And even when a student doesn't get exactly what they want, they'll call a year later and say, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. So you really just have to believe that the hard work is there. My dad always gave me a piece of advice that said, if you're doing the right things, things tend to work out. Know you're doing the right things. And I'm just going to piggyback on that and just tell students to stay involved with their, whether it's a specialty advisor, residency and career advisor. The one thing we do throughout this entire process is keep you abreast of all the information you need to know. And we're always there to respond to any questions. We don't want students to be out there with a question and not knowing the answer and getting anxious about it or getting stressed about it. So I think you, you trust the process. You really have to believe you're going to end up where you're meant to be. In the long run, the most important thing is you're going to be out there helping people and saving lives. And that's what it's all about. Well, we are reaching the end of our time here. So Deb, Holly, this has been a blast. I have learned so much. And I think a lot of medical students will benefit from hearing advice from seasoned professionals as yourselves. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.